And then there's this sort of last big question, which is, if America chooses to lead, will other countries follow? Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. You're listening to the fourth episode of our 2020 presidential election series. So far in this series, we've discussed progressive foreign policy, Trump foreign policy, and most recently, election interference. In this episode, we discuss what foreign policy may look like under a Biden administration should he win the November 2020 presidential election. What worldview guides Joe Biden's decision-making in foreign policy? What foreign policy priorities might a Biden administration choose to tackle first? And how would a Biden administration's foreign policy differ from that of President Trump's? To help us answer these questions, to end the podcast, we're joined by Dr. Jim Lindsay. As a reminder for the election series, while POFA hosts will be following up on questions, POFA hosts are not meant to overtly debate the positions of our guests. Rather, we will be leaving that critical thinking to you, the listener. At the conclusion of the election series, POFA hosts will be casually discussing their personal thoughts on the series as a whole. James Lindsay is Senior Vice President, Director of Studies, and Maurice R. Greenberg Chair at the Council on Foreign Relations. Prior to returning to CFR in 2009, Dr. Lindsay was the inaugural director of the Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas at Austin. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. To start us off, we'd like to discuss Vice President Biden's personal views on foreign policy. Do you think Vice President Biden has a particular worldview that would guide his approach to foreign policy as president? Yes, I would describe Vice President Biden as having a traditional foreign policy view, or traditional, at least in the post-World War II sense. He believes that the United States can best advance its security and its prosperity by leading like-minded countries in efforts to confront common challenges and to solve common concerns. It's a view that American presidents from Harry Truman to Barack Obama all subscribe to, even as they disagreed about how to apply that worldview to specific issues in policies. And it's an approach that has two characteristics. One is the belief in the importance of American leadership to mobilize other countries. Second, the sense that there is the potential for win-win or positive sum solutions. That is, if you work together with others, not only will you be stronger, but you can get more done. So in reference to what you just talked about, a belief in American leadership and a potential for cooperation, could you talk a little bit more about how this worldview might differ from that of President Trump? Well, President Trump has a very different take on the world in how it operates. It's one that views the world as fundamentally a zero-sum place. Each state is sovereign. Each state is pursuing its own interests without regard to the interests to others. It's essentially a doggy-dog world. And what's characteristic about President Trump's view of the world is that America's friends are as dangerous as its enemies. And again, if you look at President Trump, and this is a view he's had going back to the 1980s. He famously paid for an all-page ad letter to the American public back in 1987, which was assailing the Reagan administration's handling of foreign policy. It was largely an argument that our friends, in this case, the Saudis, uh, were picking America's pockets by having America pick up the costs of securing the Gulf. 
criticized the Japanese and the Europeans on trade policy and the rest. And that's been the president's sort of consistent worldview. Now, sometimes President Trump is described as being an isolationist, but that's not quite right. President Trump, or then candidate Trump, you want to go back before 2016, really never talked about America coming home. He was happy for the United States and for the U.S. military to stay abroad if he could get a good deal. President Trump's foreign policy leans more in the direction of being unilateral and transactional. In that sense, the United States is the most powerful country in the world. It should be willing to throw its weight around. And if it does so, it will get more of the pie. It's an approach that doesn't put a premium on working with others or mobilizing the community to get things done. And I would suggest that over the past four years, uh, that strategy hasn't produced the winning that he promised it would. And also, I wanted to ask you, comparing Vice President Biden's worldview to previous centrist or center-left administrations, what do you think might be some things that would be different from a potential Biden administration to, say, the Obama administration, and what things might be the same? Well, two things are definitely going to be different. One, the world is different. Uh, There is no possibility to sort of hit a rewind button and to go back to 2016 and start all over again. So in that case, the Biden administration is going to face a different series of issues than the Obama administration faced. And those different issues are going to pose different choices. And we'll see how uh, President Biden chooses. The second aspect for a Biden presidency, which is going to make it different from an Obama presidency or anything else before that is going to be the condition of the United States. Now, we have reached a point where the United States is far more in debt than it was, let's even four years ago. We're in a situation in which the public is far more concerned about domestic policy than foreign policy. That puts a premium for a Biden presidency to address those very real domestic concerns that the American public is worried about, the pandemic, jobs, healthcare, inequality, race, the list goes on. That's going to be much more important domestically in political terms than what the administration is doing on Nagano-Karabakh or on Yemen. At the same time, a number of the national security foreign policy agencies have really been harmed uh, over the four years of the Trump administration. We've seen a, a exodus of talent coming out of the State Department over the four years of the Trump term. Uh, I think there are great concerns about the politicization of the intelligence community. And so one of the tasks that a Biden presidency is going to have to deal with and going to have to deal with very early on is how do you repopulate, replenish, refresh, and reinvigorate the foreign policy and national security agencies? So you just mentioned, you know, reinvigorating the foreign policy agencies in the United States. But aside from that, what other foreign policy priorities would a Biden administration choose to tackle early on in its administration? Well, whenever we answer a question like this, it's useful to be humble. Inauguration is three days off from when we're recording, and the world could look a lot different on January 20th than it does today. I mean, just think of how different the world looked in April 2020 
than it did in January 2020. So things could happen that could really scramble the playbook for a Biden administration if we get a Biden administration. I think there are some things we can count on that a Biden administration will try to do. One is going to be to reach out to allies. Another is going to be to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, a third is to try to find a way to reinvigorate and potentially have the United States rejoin the so-called Iran uh, nuclear deal. And I would expect the administration will do sort of standard things that democratic administrations do to reverse policies of uh, Republican administrations. One of the sort of most well-known is reversing the so-called Mexico City policy under which the United States will not give money to uh, international agencies that engage in providing counseling on abortion or providing abortion services. So you're going to get those sort of things. But again, I think you have to sort of step back and, and not focus so much on what a Biden administration might do coming out of the gate. There's a more important preliminary question, which is to what extent is President Biden going to put his energy into doing things on the foreign policy front as opposed to the domestic policy front. And I would suspect that for Biden presidency, first issues coming out of the debate, the issues that are going to take up the president's time are going to be issues doing, dealing with uh, the domestic challenges the country faces. I think it's also important as we think about this to sort of put aside the question about what candidates say they will do or what candidates want to do. We spent a lot of time talking about that. The real question in the American presidency is, what can a president actually get done? And that's partly about what the president chooses to invest his time and energy in, but it's really also about what the conditions are here in the United States. Very simple thing like who controls the United States Senate? A Biden presidency facing a Democratic Senate has a different set of choices, a little more freedom than it would if Republicans maintained control of the Senate. Likewise, there's going to be a very big question for a Biden administration, how cohesive or how coherent are Democrats on foreign policy? Now, obviously, we had a contested primary. There were a lot of people in the Democratic Party who labeled themselves as uh, progressives who were unhappy with Joe Biden's track record in foreign policy, the positions they've taken. They have, over the last six months or so, rallied behind the Biden candidacy because they've made a choice that it's more important to defeat Trump. And then you can worry about arguing over what a democratic foreign policy should look like. But the fact that we haven't had a food fight in the last several months about democratic foreign policy doesn't mean that those divisions don't exist. It doesn't mean those divisions aren't real. And it doesn't mean those divisions can't become very, very heated. So you're going to have that thing. The other thing is just sort of factor in, you know, it's very hard for any administration to hit the ground running, either in domestic or in foreign policy, because we have such tremendous turnover at the upper echelons of the US government. Each time a new administration comes in, they have to fill something on the order of 4,000 Senate confirmed slots. Now, let's say 700 of those are really critical to the functioning of government. Well, those are positions you have to name people, you have to have them clear all of the clearance procedures, and you have to get the Senate to approve their nomination. 
So it can take four, five, six, seven, eight months before an administration is fully ramped up. One of the consequences of that is that a lot of administrations will spend their first several months essentially just engaging in policy reviews, trying to figure out what they want to do on North Korea, what they want to do on Iran, how they're going to reconfigure U.S. policy to Russia, uh, rather than sort of coming out of the gate on January 20th at you know 12.05 p.m. with a whole new set of policies. So it's going to take, some, take a while for that Biden team to come together. And then, of course, you always have the question of how well does that team function together? And if you just go back to the Trump administration, if you look at the choices that President Trump selected to sort of populate his most senior foreign policy and national security positions, what you discovered was many of them weren't on the same page of the book as the president. And that caused a lot of friction and confusion in administration foreign policy. The Biden administration is going to face that same challenge as all new administrations do. You know, Jim, I think you make a great point, especially considering that we don't know what the world is going to look like three months forward. I would argue that, and I don't know that you mentioned this, but China, I think, will be a problem for administrations even beyond a potential Biden administration or a second Trump term, especially considering how much great power competition has affected the U.S. economy, you know, since 2016. So... Considering that, do you think that a Biden administration would also focus its overarching foreign policy strategy around great power competition moving forward, you know, with the information that we have right now? A lot of the answer to that question depends upon what one means by great power competition. I would suggest that the Biden administration, like past administrations, is going to have to spend a large share of its time focusing on what other major powers are doing, whether we're talking about China or we're talking about Russia, we're talking about the European Union. That's because for any administration, its ability to accomplish whatever it decides are its policies, its policy priorities, is going to be shaped by what other major powers do, whether in support or in opposition. When we speak specifically about China, I think it is safe to say that the the weight of opinion in the United States has shifted. We've reached a point where I think people now look back on U.S. policy toward China in the late 1990s, first decade of the 21st century, which made a big bet that engaging China, uh, sort of helping it integrate into the West would lead to a China that was sympathetic to essentially the world America created after the end of World War II, that China would, in essence, sign up to the rules of the game, to borrow a phrase popularized by Bob Zelik, a former member of the uh, George W. Bush administration later. Uh, president of the World Bank, that we would get in China a responsible stakeholder. And I think the evidence has been really ever since the great financial crisis, 2009 into 2010, that that hope, that wager uh, really hasn't paid off. Under 
now uh, Chairman Xi Jinping, China has gone essentially backwards, much more authoritarian, much more aggressive. You can have arguments as to what's driving that, but I think that's the reality. So the political conversation in Washington, I think in the country more broadly is, how do you deal now with China that really is a challenger, a country that doesn't look like it simply wants to join the club and follow the rules, but wants to rewrite them and wants to rewrite them in ways that trample on our values and hurt our interests. And that's really sort of the big question. So I do think that's what the Biden uh, team is going to focus on, among other issues. It's not at all clear, though, what specific policy choices a Biden administration will make. Because this is a really tough problem of policy. Because at the end of the day, the United States uh, wants China to change its behavior, but the United States also wants things from China, right? We want to sell our goods to China, whether it's soybeans uh, or software. We want the Chinese to come into our capital markets and buy up U.S. debt so we can fund. The United States deficit spending. We want the Chinese to cooperate with us in combating climate change, and the list goes long. So you have this challenge of we're in a competitive relationship with the Chinese. So we want to use coercive measures, economic or otherwise, but we also need things from the Chinese. We want their collaboration, so we need to offer them something as well. And it's going to be very interesting to see how the Biden administration really, at the end of the day, makes the trade-off between those two competing considerations. Well, Jim, I think that is a perfect segue because, you know, during the Trump administration, I think we've seen that the trade-off of those considerations has been, you know, the Trump administration has pushed for competition as opposed to cooperation in, you know, tons of different sectors. Uh, one of which is technology through Huawei, one of which is through freedom of navigation um, exercises in the South China Sea. So I'm wondering, do you think that the Biden administration, and I know you just touched on this, but will the Biden administration take that same approach of like a very competitive um, tension with China in its in its foreign policy towards China, or would it be more of a, um, you know, a cooperative or some mix of the both? I guess, what is the continuity and change between Trump administration policies and a potential Biden administration on the issue of of China foreign policy? I think you will see at a meta level, call it the 40,000 foot level, a continuity in US policy. The United States essentially standing up to or calling out Chinese behavior that the United States deems to be aggressive or counterproductive. You're going to see that in terms of freedom of uh, navigation operations in the South China Sea. I think you're going to see it in terms of trade. I mean, I wouldn't assume that because Joe Biden's a Democrat and Donald Trump is Republican, that Biden is going to overturn all the parts of uh, Trump's trade policy. So I think you're going to hear a message to the Chinese that, that sort of continues that China needs to change its behavior. I think on some issues, you're going to see a Biden presidency be more forward-leaning and more critical of Beijing. And that's clearly going to be the case on human rights issues. Uh, Think, for example, of the mass detention of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, Western province of China, which the 
uh, Trump administration until recently had not made a focal point of American foreign policy. I would expect to hear a lot more talk from a President Biden about human rights abuses in China uh, that we've heard throughout most of the Trump administration. Where I think you're likely to see differences or an attempt to get differences is that the Trump approach to China has, for the most part, been a unilateral one. It's the United States dealing with China one-on-one. Look, it's in the trade realm. Uh, The president used tariffs, a unilateral act, to uh, penalize the Chinese. The president did so because he believed that the United States sort of on its own has the economic clout to make China bend to his will. The president didn't make a different choice, which was to work with America's trade partners, many of whom have the exact same set of concerns about the Chinese and try to put forward some kind of joint effort to pressure Beijing. That effort would have been harder to bring about, but much more likely to be successful uh, because there is in fact strength in numbers. And indeed, if you look at just specifically at the Trump administration's trade policy with China, it has produced very little in the way of progress or success for the United States. If you look, let's just take specifically the issue of tariffs, uh, tariffs on Chinese goods uh, looks to have, to some degree, improved manufacturing employment in the United States, in the steel industry, for example, aluminum industry. But it has come at a very high cost, both literally, estimates are that for every job saved in those industries, the United States government has spent somewhere between six and $900,000, but also a high cost of collateral damage to people in other industries. Because what did the Chinese do when the United States targeted China with tariffs? China turned around and hit American products with tariffs or chose not to buy them. And that's really aggravated what has been a long-term slump in the U.S. farm community over the last decade or so, and they've been really hurt, so much so that the Trump administration actually had to go in and bail out uh, farmers across the country uh, to keep them from going under. Jim, an, an interesting thing I've been thinking about is, as a university student, to me, it seems shocking that the kind of discussion space on foreign policy is now almost entirely focused on China. And it's it's really apparent to me. Um, for example, we recently did applications for a podcast uh, where we asked students to highlight an issue that they thought was most salient in international affairs. And out of the, say, 20 people that applied, almost all of them mentioned China. Is this a consequence of the Trump administration's foreign policy towards China as a you know, kind of defining feature of its foreign policy? Or do you think this more has to do with the kind of global transformations that we've seen since 2016? And do you think the kind of focus on talking about China when it comes to foreign policy will continue under a Biden administration? Well, I don't know if the sort of range of issues being discussed in foreign policy communities has shrunk over time. I mean, it seems to me that there are lots of issues that get discussed besides China, Russia, trade policy, immigration, climate change, I can go on. But when you specifically, you know, sort of look at China 
and sort of the conversations that are taking place, I think it's a reflection of the fact that China has become, next to the United States, the most consequential country in the world. It is the world's second largest economy. It is a country that, unlike the United States, is a creditor rather than a debtor. That means it's out lending money rather than borrowing money. So we see the whole Belt and Road Initiative uh, by the Chinese to build an infrastructure that has obvious appeal, not just in Asia, but in Africa, Latin America, even in Europe. What you've also had happen is that China under Xi Jinping has really changed its approach to foreign policy. You know, if you go back to Deng Xiaoping, one of the great figures in Chinese history in the 20th century and really sort of changed the trajectory of China, his argument to his fellow countrymen was that China should bide its time and hide its brilliance. Well, we now have Xi Jinping, and he's not interested in trying to sort of play down the role that China can have in the world. He wants to play it up. And we have seen over the last five to 10 years, a much more aggressive Chinese foreign policy, a Chinese foreign policy that is much less interested in how the rest of the world will react. And so we see things like China uh, cracking down on Hong Kong protesters. We have China taking much more threatening posture toward Taiwan. We have China uh, trying to militarize the South China Sea. We have China uh, contesting in the Himalayas with the Indians and otherwise using its economic importance to pressure countries to do its bidding. So I think that's the bigger reason for why people are now focused on China. Because I will note that, you know, we talk about China here in the United States, but I can assure you that in Japan, they talk about China a lot. They talk about China a lot in South Korea. And what's really interesting is how much more space China is taking up in Europe because for many years, many European countries, particularly Germany, saw China solely in economic terms, a place to sell uh, high quality, cutting edge manufacturing products, things like Mercedes-Benz cars. Uh, but now they see that China may have an impact on their lives that goes well beyond economics. So, Jim, to switch gears a little bit, um, so Vice President Biden has had deep experience in foreign policy uh, since his time as vice president and as also a senator on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. But some people have criticized his foreign policy record. I think the most notable one was former Defense Secretary Robert Gates's criticism, who said um, Biden had been nearly wrong on he'd been wrong on nearly every foreign policy decision in four decades. And some of these decisions that are cited on the campaign website, uh, you know, include uh, in 20, 2002 voting for the authorization for the use of military force against Iraq and opposing the raid that killed bin Laden, uh, downplaying the threat of China in 2019, and also in 2015, um, saying that the Iran nuclear deal was a good deal. And these are all on the Trump um, campaign website. So my question to you is if you think these criticisms on of Biden's record are warranted. That's a great question. And 
it's a hard one to answer in a way because what's a good decision uh, depends upon the person you're talking to. Let me just sort of say at the broadest level that nobody in this business gets every issue right, not even Bob Gates. Uh, if you're in foreign policy long enough, you're going to make a prediction that doesn't come true. But you're quite right. When it comes to uh, Vice President Biden, he's been criticized for getting Iraq wrong not once but twice. He voted uh, against the Gulf War back in 1991, and then he voted for the Iraq War. Uh, and of course, if you are Donald Trump and you think the Iran nuclear deal was a really bad idea, then obviously his support for that is further evidence uh, that he doesn't get things right. But of course, for many other people, certainly many Democrats believe that the uh, Iraq nuclear deal, more formally the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, was actually the right thing to do. And I'll just note on the issue of the bin Laden raid. The vice president's position wasn't that it was wrong to uh, go after bin Laden. He was questioning whether the president had enough information, enough certainty to go ahead with that specific operation. Uh, the flip side of it is, of course, if you can look at Vice President Biden's foreign policy record, you can find examples that I think most people would say he was right. I'll just offer up two. One, he was a big supporter of NATO expansion in the 1990s. And likewise, if you're going to look at roles played with an administration, if you go back to 2009, as President Barack Obama was struggling with what to do in Afghanistan, Vice President Biden argued essentially for keeping a small footprint in Afghanistan, essentially a counterterrorism focused mission. Uh, the president, President Obama, did not choose to go in that direction. But I will note that the policy that Joe Biden favored back in 2008, 2009, 2010 is pretty similar to the policy that President Trump currently favors. Just one last point on this sort of making predictions uh, business in how people have performed in the past. And it's sort of like the tagline that goes along with a lot of advertisements for financial products which is that past performance is no predictor of future performance. And you can look at someone like Harry Truman, who was relatively inexperienced when it came to foreign policy. And I think most people in my business would say he had one of the most successful foreign policy presidency of any American president since the end of World War II. Then you have George H.W. Bush, who was deeply experienced in foreign policy, and he had an enormously successful foreign policy track record. Then you have George W. Bush, who himself may have had uh, relatively little foreign policy experience, but certainly headed up what many people regarded to be an all-star team of foreign policy experts. And they had a foreign policy that was, uh, I think it's safe to say, problematic, most notably uh, with the decision to invade Iraq and the great catastrophe that that unleashed. So overall, considering everything that we've talked about today, you know, especially considering the United States' traditional global leadership role, the Trump administration has clearly stepped away from it by leaving international institutions, nixing international agreements and criticizing allies. If a Biden administration were to seek to reverse course on those decisions, how would they go about it? 
I want to answer your question, but let me just sort of take a step back for a moment because you used the phrase global leadership, which I think deserves some clarification because it's often assumed by people that global leadership means military adventurism, military interventions. It doesn't. What it means is using the power of the United States to mobilize others. And indeed, one could be in favor of American global leadership and believe that the Iraq war was an incredibly bad counterproductive decision to make. So I just want to sort of put it, that out there. For the Biden administration going forward to try to reassert American leadership, the first thing to do, obviously, is you're going to have to burn up a lot of shoe leather. Whoever is Secretary of State, Deputy Secretary of State, various undersecretary, assistant secretaries of state are going to be spending a lot of time visiting foreign capitals, trying to reassure other countries about the United States, explain what then-President Biden uh, hopes to do. Uh, we're going to see most likely announcements by administration that they will join certain international organizations that uh, the Trump administration has left, I think most notably WHO and the like. But once we get to that point, the Biden administration will in some sense have plucked all the low-hanging fruit because at that point, the real hard work begins because there are a couple of problems here that the Biden administration has to face and has to answer for itself. And we'll see how well, if, it be, if Biden becomes president, he answers these questions. Number one, what do you do with the leverage that the Trump administration's policies have created with other countries. Just think about tariffs that the President Trump has imposed, offended a number of our uh, close trading partners. Uh, do you just lift those tariffs on day one? Do you say, I'm going to lift it, but I want other countries to do certain things? Uh, you have the same situation in dealing with Iran. The reality is that the Trump administration's maximum pressure strategy has created leverage with the Iranians. Well, what are you going to trade it for? How exactly would you get back into the Iran nuclear deal? I mean, those are big, tough questions with lots of uh, meaty details that they're going to have to work out. Uh, but beyond that is also the question of what issues do you want to lead on? And this gets you to the question of what your priorities are going to be. You know, there's an old saying that if everything's a priority, nothing is. So the Biden administration is going to have to decide what it wants to invest its foreign policy calories in. And that's going to be function partly of what they hope to accomplish and what they think they can get accomplished. And then there's this sort of last big question, which is if America chooses to lead, will other countries follow? And I think most of our close traditional allies think the Europeans, think Japan, think South Korea are inclined to want to uh, follow American leadership to work with the United States. They see that in as in their interest. They share not just material interests with us, but values. But obviously, you, you run into a challenge where you can imagine countries that were quite eager to do more for the United States when Donald Trump was in power, and they were fearful that he was going to do something that really jeopardized them, uh, lose their interest in doing the hard work once they have Joe Biden in office because they figure whether they 
contribute or not, the Biden presidency is going to go and do the things they want to see done. And then, of course, you have the other big unknown in all of this, which is what are the domestic politics going to be like uh, in many of our close partner countries? It's pretty clear if you look at the Pew polls and other polls that uh, the Trump administration is not looked kindly upon by most Europeans. And there's this debate, which uh, time would settle, which is to what extent have Europeans or people in other countries soured on Donald Trump versus how much they have soured on the United States. And I think one of the consequences flowing out of the pandemic, particularly the pandemic coming on the heels of the Great Recession, is that it has really cast doubt around the world on the American model of democracy, the American economic model, but even more so the competence of the United States. And I think one of the challenges for a President Biden, should we get a President Biden, if he wants to succeed in foreign policy, is going to have to be to re reinvigorate reintroduce the belief and the faith that people have in the American model and the ability of the United States to get things done. And I think that's going to really require the president, a President Biden, to succeed on many of the domestic issues that he's flagged in his campaign. And the problem he's going to face there is one, those problems are big and difficult to fix. Number two, the United States of America is deeply politically polarized, and I don't expect the election of 2020 to settle that issue. So in the end, a President Biden is going to come into office with a foreign policy inbox and a domestic policy inbox that is overflowing with big, tough issues. People are going to expect him to solve them, and it's going to be very hard to do. I think that's a great message to close on for our voting listeners. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here to talk to us about a potential Biden foreign policy. Well, thank you, Zach. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, uh, Fabiana. It was a pleasure to join you for this conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. As a reminder, all of the opinions expressed in this episode are those of the hosts and the guests and not of Johns Hopkins University. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.